Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You dream of finding your ideal pet and giving them a good life. Purina wants that for you, too. Their pet finder platform matches animals with the right owners, and their pet foods offer excellent nutrition. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 2nd. So today we have an episode that's a little bit different. It's two parts, and today and tomorrow, we're telling the story of this thing that happened in Afghanistan. It is a war story, but it's also about the way that we tell war stories, how we tell them in court and to the public, and how that story can change and the consequences. The account that you're going to hear is from interviews with people who were at the heart of this story, along with trial records and court transcripts. I don't want to say too much before we get into it, but I do want to mention that this is an episode that talks about suicide, so you should probably be aware of that. The place where this all starts is this big announcement that happened at the end of last year. And when I first heard the news, frankly, I didn't pay that much attention to it. I just kind of saw the headlines and moved on. But for one of our reporters, Greg Jaffe... I'm a national reporter, but also spent the better part of 15 years covering the U.S. military. He became obsessed with trying to find out more about the story. So last November, President Trump pardoned three people, either charged or accused of war crimes in Afghanistan. And one of those three was this guy, Clint Lawrence. Tonight, former Army Lieutenant Clint Lawrence reunited with his family after six years in military prison. And Clint had been convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to essentially 19 years at Fort Leavenworth. Hey, I want to say thank you, President Trump. He was one of the ones let free by President Trump. It caused a big kind of argument about, you know, within the military as to whether this was the right thing to do. The moves are controversial, defying the wishes of senior military leaders who argue the pardons undermine the military code of justice. This is absolutely 100 percent within the president's right to do as commander in chief. The Pentagon pushed back very hard. You know this, uh, Congressman. They didn't want the president to take this action. They cite good order and discipline. When it comes to the United States military, he is the ultimate boss, and he can make this call. So Greg wanted to find out what happened after the pardon and after Clint Lawrence was released from prison. And for the record, Clint Lawrence decided not to talk to Greg for this story. I noticed that Lawrence's little hometown, Merritt, Texas, was throwing him a big welcome home, sort of of befitting a hero. And it was interesting to me because this was a guy who was convicted of second-degree murder by his fellow officers. And so I was just wondering, like, what motivates people in this little town, especially a little law and order town in kind of East Texas? Pray with me, please. Our most gracious and heavenly Father. To throw somebody a welcome home who's been convicted of murder. Father, we come together with this body 
right now and praise you and thank you for bringing Clint home to his family and friends on this very special night. And so it was that that led me into the story. And I went out initially to Merritt to kind of talk to the folks who threw the welcome home for him and get a sense of, you know, why did you rally to his side? What was it about Clint's story that made you feel like he was a hero? And I had essentially written that story. This has actually never happened to me before. I had written it and filed it to my bosses. And I thought, oh, shoot, I should talk to some guys from Clint's platoon and get a sense of what they thought. I knew they didn't like him. I knew they had testified against him. And I knew they thought he was a war criminal and a murderer. But I just thought, oh, I should talk to these guys. And in the course of it, I think my first conversation was with... This got really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> this dude's bad <laughs> crazy. Mike McGinnis. McGinnis is spelled M-C-G-U-I-N-N-E-S-S. He was a, a squad leader and one of the senior non-commissioned officers in the platoon. So essentially one of the leaders. You know, I hit a couple of the lower enlisted ranks a couple times because I was mouthy. When I got out in 2015, I was a staff sergeant. He sort of casually mentioned yeah, this was I in know. November or December. And Lucas and I drove up to Michigan from here. That they'd all just come back for a funeral from one of their fellow platoon members who just died of suicide. Uh, we got there like an hour before the funeral and changed in the bathroom at the, at, the, at the church. And that he was the fifth death that they've suffered since coming home in 2013. Platoon's a fairly small thing. It's only a couple dozen guys. So five deaths since coming home from the war, that's really remarkable and astounding. In the course of that conversation, it made me think, oh, wow, the real story here is not Clint Lawrence, or, or not just Clint Lawrence, not just the welcome home that he's received in Merritt, Texas, but it's what's happened to these guys who never get mentioned, not mentioned by President Trump, not mentioned by Fox News. I went to my editor and I said, hey, maybe we should be telling these guys' story. And I actually took that old draft that I wrote, the initial first draft, and we just tore it up and said, let's, let's start over. So who are the people that this story is about, starting with the, the members of, of his platoon? Yeah, I mean, this the story is really about the, the guys of first platoon. My name is Mike McGinnis. Oh, Lucas Gray, L-U-C-A-S-G-R-A-Y. I'm Zach Thomas from Crosby, Texas. Clint was only in charge of these guys for three days, but they're from all over the country. They're mostly young when they deployed to Afghanistan. You know, most of them were kind of between 18 and 22 years old. Well, I joined at 17. The NCOs were a little bit older, and those are the sergeants immediately under Clint. They had all done two or three tours. And this is a story about these guys and all of them who joined for all the normal reasons that soldiers do because they wanted to serve their country. As naive as that sounds, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do good. Because their parents were on their ass, as one of them said to me, to do something. The structure of it sounded good. They saw, you know, joining the military, going to Afghanistan as a sort of rite of passage. You know, I put a uniform on because... You know, I was as a kid, you have that kind of patriotism, like you want to do your part. And that's that's how it started out for me. Mike McGinnis, the staff sergeant, he joined before 9-11. He'd gotten his union card, was going to go work in the steel mill where his grandfather did in Ohio. And the steel mill shut down and he needed something to do. So it was the Army. You know, it was it was an opportunity and a step in that direction. And it was also a way to get out of Northeast Ohio. Two of the younger soldiers were Lucas Gray, who's a really... 
idealistic guy. For all the right reasons, I wanted to, you know, serve my country. He believes deeply in the mission and really believes in helping the Afghans. The the other guy is a guy named Zach Thomas, who's from Texas. One of the youngest members of the platoon, Zach joins at 18, right out of high school. Before the army, after the army, during the army, I was super right-wing conservative. He's from a very conservative part of Texas. That's how my whole family is. That's how my whole town is. That's how most of Texas is. He said to me that he hadn't met a Democrat, he didn't think, until he joined the army and was surprised to find some of them in his platoon. And then who is Clint Lorenz and, and what brought him to the military? So Clint's the platoon leader. He's from this little town in East Texas, very conservative, very conservative family. He's very conservative and also gay. I think he felt like a a misfit. Clint didn't talk to me, but it's clear from other interviews he's done that that's the case. Clint Lawrence is, is with us, Army Lieutenant Clint Lawrence. It's great to finally meet you. You too. Uh, you too, Sean. Uh, have you heard we've been talking about you a little bit? Were your ears burning at <laughs> absolutely, all? Absolutely. And he joins the United States military. Um, first, he enlists out of high school and is a military policeman and is sent to Iraq. And in that stand, he works primarily as a prison guard, guarding Iraqi prisoners of war. It, he doesn't leave the base and doesn't see any combat. At the end of that tour... He goes and decides to become an officer. He goes back to college, becomes an infantry officer, and is deployed to Afghanistan. He spends most of that tour at a big FOB, which is a forward operating base, doesn't see any combat. How long prior to you getting there was the platoon leader killed in a very similar situation you're about to well, describe? Well, the platoon, the previous platoon leader was not killed, but was, there, we, there were soldiers that, that were unfortunately killed uh, by those uh, animals that were fighting over there. Um cowards, really. The platoon leader from 1st Platoon, actually, halfway through the tour in 2012, he gets very badly injured. They're in a very tough spot and gets medevaced back to the United States. The previous platoon leader that I replaced, he, w- he was wounded in action, unfortunately. He's, he's, he's doing well these days. I, I can't remember exactly how long it was. It, it was a few weeks um, that the platoon was out, so- was out there without a platoon leader. And they need a new platoon leader. And so Clint Lawrence becomes that guy. They grab him from the big forward operating base, send him down to these guys. And, you know, essentially, he's in charge. So what exactly is a platoon leader? Like, what is that job? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And it's a really interesting job that almost has no parallels in the civilian world. So at the top of the platoon, there tend to be two people in charge, a platoon leader and a platoon sergeant. A platoon leader is somebody who's graduated from college, gone through sort of basic officer training, and is technically the person in charge. Typically, and this is certainly the case with Clint, that person has no combat experience and is relatively new to the Army. The platoon sergeant, who's an enlisted guy who hasn't gone to college, tends to have been in the military for much longer, He's usually, I'm talking about an infantry unit, which at the time was all male and is still, for the most part, almost entirely male. He typically has a lot of combat experience, but the platoon leader, the lieutenant, is the person in charge. The platoon sergeant is subordinate to him. But also kind of his job as platoon sergeant is to mentor the platoon leader because the platoon leader really doesn't know much about the army. And so it's a really complicated and interesting relationship that, as far as I can tell, has no parallels in the civilian world. So once Lawrence became platoon leader, 
what happened after that? So Lawrence comes in as platoon leader, and it's interesting, just the previous platoon leader, as I mentioned, is wounded, as are several of the other guys. You know, Sam Wally, who is a young soldier, is blown up and loses his leg. Uh, another soldier who was with the platoon leader when he was injured also is injured. Another soldier shot in the neck. It's been a really tough few months. They're just outside the city of Kandahar in a rural, fairly isolated area, which is in southern Afghanistan. There's some small villages. It's Taliban-dominated. The Taliban tend not to be in the cities. They tend to be in the rural areas. The tricky part is that they're executing a counterinsurgency protect-the-people strategy in an area where there aren't a lot of people. So Clint Lawrence comes in, and I think he sees it as his mission as, we're not going to lose any more guys that this platoon has suffered too many losses, and my primary mission is to make sure my guys come home safe. And his strategy for doing that is to be the biggest, baddest, badasses on the block. He talks about a shock and awe campaign. We are going to intimidate the hell out of these Afghans so they will be terrified to mess with us, and that's the best way to keep us safe. And, and did he have the okay to do that? Had he gotten permission from his higher ups that like this is going to be our new strategy to to deal with our situation? No, great question. In fact, the guidance from the higher ups was entirely the opposite. The guidance from the higher ups is this is a counterinsurgency war and we are competing for the support of the people. In Vietnam, they would call it hearts and minds. They got away from hearts and minds in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And essentially, you're in a war for support of the people, though. And your job is to convince the people that you can best protect them. You can best provide services for them. And that in reality, the Afghan government, who the U.S. military fighting in support of, and Afghan troops the U.S. military is fighting in support of, that they can best provide that support. So you're really, as the military likes to say, in a war for the people and a war for the support of the people. So what Clint was doing, what he was asking his men to do, ran completely counter to uh, U.S. military strategy at that moment. And so how did that, quote unquote, shock and awe campaign start to play out? You know, in really shocking ways. came in with his own set of rules and how he was going to control our, our area. At least for me, as someone who's covered the military, who's embedded with troops in Afghanistan, he was asking them to do things that I had never seen in, you know, 15 years of covering the military, 15 years of walking patrols with the military. And that was his plan for our area. We're going to crack the locals. They know where the IEDs are. We're going to make them tell us. We're going to have a sure and they are going to come to us. Initially, he wants the Afghans in a neighboring village to come to Ashura, which is essentially a meeting with the U.S. troops on the base. And so his mechanism for doing that is he orders a couple of troops to go up into a guard tower. I was in the tent and uh, the first day and I heard rifle shots going off. And start taking pot shots at innocent civilians. People laying on top of the guard tower with their rifles shooting into the, the town. I'm like, what are y'all doing? literally firing within 12 inches of these unarmed Afghans who are walking about their village. Oh, they, you know, Lawrence has us shooting at motorcycles. His strategy was that they will be so terrified that the U.S. forces are shooting at them that they will in turn come to this meeting to discuss security with the U.S. military. In other words, we will intimidate them into compliance. He came in and he came in guns blazing. It was his way or the highway with the locals and with us. You know, we were, we were following his rules. It was going to happen his way. Yeah. 
afterwards, he comes back after the, this incident happens and walks back into the command post. And one of the soldiers from the platoon, one of the, the sergeants, testifies at the trial that, you know, Lawrence is sort of giddy with excitement watching these Afghans being shot at and says, you know, as to why he did it. It's, it's funny to watch those fuckers dance, you know, almost as if this were an old Western There's another incident with an Afghan farmer who asked to move some razor wire, which is barbed wire, that was across his land that the military had put in, to move it a couple of feet so he could get to his crops. He comes to the front gate with his young child, who, you know, the soldiers estimated was somewhere around, you know, three and four years old. And Clint, you know, threatens the man and says, hey, if you touch that razor wire, I'm going to have my men kill you and your child. If we find any IEDs on your land that you don't tell us about, we're going to kill you and your child. And and that stuff, not only does it run completely counter to the U.S.'s counterinsurgency strategy, um, you know, it's a war crime. As other soldiers are seeing this, what is their reaction to this, that he's starting to make these threats and talk about killing children? They're appalled and worried. And the senior sergeants in particular have an interesting conversation at this point. You know, he's only been in charge two days during the incidents I described. And Mike McGinnis and the uh, the platoon sergeant at the time, whose name is Ayers, and he unfortunately did not talk to me for this piece, but they have a real discussion about, you know, what do we do about this? You know, and then I told him about us, like, literally getting chest to chest over this. And he's like... He's the PO, you know, you got to take his guidance. Ayers in particular is in a tough spot. So Ayers is the platoon sergeant. And remember, he's got this weird mentor-follower relationship with Lawrence. That's that's his job. And so he says to Mike McGinnis, hey, let's, let's just give him some time. You know, it's our job to mentor him. Yes, I don't like this either. Yes, this is bad. But let's, you know, let's keep talking to him. My job, it's only been two days, is to make this work. And that means counseling Lawrence, trying to convince him that there's a better way to do this, and that if he continues to act in this way, his troops will turn on them because he's putting them at risk. Like, I've already got, at this point, I've got a bad taste in my mouth. But, you know, I was like, we got to give him, we, he's the PL, you know. And so what happens from there? Yeah, so two days, lots of bad stuff. Everybody's really on edge, unsure what to do, frustrated, Um Lawrence is not sleeping at all, sleeping two or three hours a night, still committed to his shock and awe campaign. And they have a briefing before their next patrol. It's a fairly routine patrol into a neighboring village to talk to the village elders. It's something the military does every day. Before they go out, they have what's called a pre-brief. You know, this is where we're going. This is what we're doing. They'll then talk about the rules of engagement, when you're allowed to fire, who you're allowed to fire at. Sometimes those change, but they tend to be pretty static throughout the tour. But you want to reinforce them to your troops, because once you pull the trigger on that gun, once that bullet goes, there's no taking it back, and the consequences are huge. So it's something you reinforce again and again. On this morning, the pre-brief was just really confusing. And we get start, start to get told about these motorcycles in the area, and how t- these are Taliban members, he says. You know, Taliban is using these motorcycles to travel in and out of this area all the time. We know this for fact. You know, some soldiers remember Lawrence saying motorcycles are no longer allowed in our area of operations. Lawrence comes out from the tent and he's like, hey, ROE's changed. Um, you know, we're allowed to fire at people on motorcycles. 
And I was like, that doesn't sound right because everybody in Afghanistan rides around on a motorcycle. So if you see a motorcycle, they are fair game to shoot. Taliban and, and motorcycles are 100% related. And anybody in this area already knows that you can't have a motorcycle. So we have an authorization to engage all motorcycles on site, is what he said. That's not true. No one gave that as the rules of engagement. Why did he even say that? Like, what was so scary about motorcycles? I mean, he had been up at brigade headquarters, which is a higher headquarters in that big fob. And part of his job was to review the intelligence. And one of the concerns was that the Taliban use motorcycles because you can get in and out quickly. You can use them to throw explosives at troops. Now, that hadn't happened to this platoon, but it certainly happened in other places in Afghanistan. So motorcycles were potentially scary. That said, motorcycles were also the main mode of transport throughout this area of Afghanistan. It wasn't an area that was amenable to cars. You couldn't get around that way because the roads were so terrible and narrow. If you've been in Afghanistan for five minutes, everybody rides a motorcycle. It's nothing to see a family of three holding a goat on a motorcycle going down the road. And if you're going to shoot everyone on a motorcycle, you're going to kill a lot of people. So Lorenz says no motorcycles allowed, even though this clearly wasn't something that had been communicated from higher levels of, of the army. Well, there's some dispute about that, too. Yeah, different people have different memories. He says no motorcycles allowed and we're OK to shoot motorcycles. Others remember him saying the Afghans have new, new ROE that says no motorcycles allowed and they're allowed to, to shoot them. It's exactly what you don't want in one of these pre-briefs. Soldiers should go out on these patrols with a very clear understanding of the rules of engagement. And what they got was a muddle. And this was right before the mission. It was very strange, but me being a young private, I mean, this guy just came from a battalion for crying out loud. You know, of course he knows best. And, And so then what happens after that? So they roll out the gate and they see three Afghan men on a motorcycle about 200, 250 yards away. Um, hear chatter on the radio about a motorcycle approaching approaching the, uh, the patrol. And the men on the motorcycle are going down a dirt road at a slight, depending on who you talk to, a slightly higher than normal rate of speed towards the Afghan forces. All I know is while we're walking, I could see the guys on the motorcycle approach originally. Because like I said, we're strung out so bad and I'm in the ass end of the formation and I'm out in the open. I could see them. Now, the U.S. forces are a considerable way away. I have a magnified optic on my rifle. So if I'm like I'm looking through it and I'm making sure, you know, the U.S. troops are not under any threat. You can see plain as day there's no weapons. They have no weapons. They see the Afghans on the motorcycle going towards the Afghan soldiers at the front of the U.S. patrol. The Afghan soldiers order them to stop. The Afghans are are stopping and in the process of sort of getting off their motorcycle when um, Clint orders his men to open fire on them. So we were sitting static. I was in the driver's seat. Um, Lawrence comes over the radio ordering us to engage the motorcycle. There's a back and forth, like there's no PID, this and that, whatever. Um, There's a gun truck, which is essentially a big armored vehicle um, that's providing overwatch. There's a debate among the three guys in the gun truck as to what he's asking them to do. They're not quite clear on it. And and I keep hearing him on the radio to fire. And I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, do not fire. You know, I'm I'm 
mashing that button, don't fire, you know? And I started running up. And eventually our gunner engages the motorcycle. And that's when I heard the, the 240 go off. When the weapon fired, it's just like I got knocked out and I blacked out. I, don't, I can't remember very much about it. I was kind of scared, angry, disgusted. I was nauseous. I was really, really, really nauseous. I knew, you know, I knew something terrible that happened. The gunner, who's up in the turret with a big, heavy machine gun, opens fire, kills two of the men. The third guy manages to, to run away. And, uh, you know, I saw two guys. We see two guys out in the open. and. I recognized the, the, the oldest gentleman who I knew was the village elder. And we, knew, we recognized them as elders of the village that we were going into that day. The one that was just younger than him was his nephew. And like we'd seen these guys like dozens of times because we walked through Panzai all the time. I mean, they waved at us before we shot them. They're freaked out at that point. The fight's not over. So initially, when you kill somebody, your job is to search them, to see who these guys are. Are they carrying weapons? Do they have ID cards? What can we find out about these guys we just killed, you know, for intelligence value? So Laurent sends a couple of his soldiers to go search these guys and see what's on them. They go up and they search them and realize that... You know, I saw cucumbers and I saw photo IDs, like seeing no weapons... Seeing the family members there crying, seeing cucumbers and an ID was real clear that it was civilians. Nothing that's going to cause any damage to anyone. What was the reaction of, of the members of the platoon when they realized what a grave mistake they just made? So they're, they're freaked out. The captain of the troop squadron, essentially the next level of command, who's not there, he's back at headquarters, asks Lawrence over the radio... Have you searched the bodies? Have you searched the bodies? What did you find? Lawrence tells his radio man, his radio operator, to tell the captain, um, we weren't able to search the bodies. The Afghans grabbed them before we could search them, which is a lie. The radio operator says, I'm not going to tell that lie. I'm not going to lie because I'm going to get in trouble. And so Lawrence grabs his radio and essentially lies to the, the commanding officer, saying, we couldn't search them, the Afghans took the bodies, which is completely untrue. So the killing of, of these two men, how did that eventually become public or, or, or known to higher-ups in the military? So after the, the incident I just described, um, they're still out there for another 30 minutes or so. They initially go into the village where they were going to have this meeting, and a helicopter and, and voice intercepts pick up Taliban, who are considerably upset with the Americans at this point, start to mass for an attack. There's another firefight in which Mike McGinnis and two other soldiers kill two Afghans with radios who, who are intercepted talking about attacking the Americans. At this point, all hell is breaking loose, and so they return to the base, cut the mission short. Back at the base, everybody's really upset. Lucas Gray, who is the sort of the platoon idealist, turns to McGinnis and essentially says, I think we just committed murder. And I've been 
back to that moment millions of times since then about what I could have done, how I could have stopped it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed of myself, but I was frozen. The way it becomes known to higher-ups is that PFC Skelton, he was the one who was supposed to do the searching of the bodies, and he knew that Lawrence had lied to the higher-ups about the search of the bodies. So he goes to the captain on the big base, which is a mile and a half away, and says, hey, you need to know what happened today. I think we killed two innocents, and I think Lieutenant Lawrence lied to you about it. That then sets off a big investigation in which they call the members of the platoon back and the members of the platoon spin out what had happened over those three days, kind of all that sort of pain and heartache. And how swiftly did the army respond to this and start to prosecute Lawrence? You know, it's within 24 hours, if if not less, that the commander relieves Lawrence of his command and they initiate the investigation. And at that point, essentially the platoon has to shut down. It becomes consumed with the investigation. Several of the soldiers are pulled up to the FOB where they get their statements and be questioned over a series of several weeks. Others are left back at the original base with a new unit. Several of the soldiers also get charged with murder or threatened to be charged with murder. Um, so the, the, the soldier in the turret who fires the shots that kill the men, you know, he is threatened with murder charges. Essentially, they're cast to the winds and, and then tell me about the trial. So, I mean, the trial happens at Fort Bragg in 2013 in North Carolina when they get back. Ten of Lawrence's guys um, from the platoon testify against him. Nobody from the platoon testifies in support of him. And essentially, you know, the various guys who witnessed this, both the incident in which the, the two Afghans are killed and the, the various several incidents leading up to it, all testify as to what they heard. You know, the the patterns of aggressive behavior towards the Afghans, shooting at them for no reason, the patterns of, of consistent lying, all of that becomes unspooled at the at the trial over the course of several days. And what was the verdict from the trial? So, you know, it's a military court martial. The jury is made up of of army officers who are who are superior to him. They come back relatively quickly within a matter of hours convicting him of murder and sentencing him to 20 years in prison. An army general reviews the conviction and and cuts it down to 19 years. And at that point, this is 2013, he's sent off to Fort Leavenworth to, to serve his sentence. And the thing is, in, in the, the months after Lawrence is prosecuted, you know, we, you know, the guys in platoon, you know, we got people questioning us. You guys must have been like really shit subordinates that you wouldn't protect them. You know, people are sitting there, well, you all conspired against them. You made this story up. And then, you know, Hannity's talking about it. You know, we're just like, Jesus Christ. Uh, <laughs> like, come on, dude. They're going to drag us through the mud. What happens after Clint Lawrence's conviction, that's tomorrow in the second part of this story.
Greg Jaffe is a national reporter for The Post. The interviews you heard with Platoon members were conducted by John Gerberg, a video producer with The Post. This story was produced by Rena Flores from Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and we'll be back tomorrow with the second part of this story. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.